This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, comedian and writer Zara Norbash is joined in conversation by CIIS faculty Zara Zimbardo to talk about countering Islamophobia with humor. This conversation was recorded in front of a live audience in San Francisco on December 15, 2016. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Zara. It's hey, Zara. Hey. <laughs> Can we just do that for five minutes? Yeah. Zara. That would be amazing because hey, that would be more times than I've addressed another <laughs> Zara in my entire life. <laughs> right? This is a true rare delight and it's a real joy and honor to have you come talk with us at CIAS. So thank you. And I want to echo the thank you to the immense effort, everyone, of coming out on this evening, which seems to be the rainiest day in modern California history. <laughs> um, truly, which is maybe. The weather's way of protesting Trump's threat to erase all climate data. Yes. All conspiracy theories are open. It's a solid joke. I might steal that one. Go for it. Yeah, because I could just say Zara said it. There you go. (laughs) And maybe no one would (laughs) question that. (laughs) Such a time of sad jokes. Um, Mm. I want to start out with asking about your current work and your current comedy special on behalf of all Muslims. What's it like being the representatives of all Muslims, 1.5 billion people? Any pressures or? It is such a responsibility that I accept mm-hmm. with, the, with so much thanks and um, gratitude. I feel like um, having the ability to speak on behalf of 1.7 billion people. Thanks for the correction. Because uh, it's growing. Right. Uh, It's growing. Can I say that I'm proud of that? Do I get to say that I'm proud of that? I feel like this is the one thing that I always am envious of with other religions, the ability to recruit. (laughs) It's 1.7 billion and growing. 72 sects of Islam. Also, by the way, I always like to say that. uh, Represented by me. That's, I can't imagine the weight that is to shoulder on a daily basis. In stride is all I can say. Yeah. You know, actually, even if I could just like get somebody to create an app that is like 99 cents to just like download once, mm-hmm. I would be doing pretty well. Yeah. I mean, and we're in San Francisco. I just want to put that out there. These are uh, like perhaps mediocre jokes that I'm making, but feel free to laugh amply and loudly. <laughs> we are in the area that has been dubbed Silicon Alley, so maybe someone will pick that up. Oh, yeah, maybe people are just, like, seriously taking notes. I welcome that as well. <laughs> um, and is, has this already launched? I uh, am so fortunate to have an artist-in-residency grant from the Islamic Cultural Center of Northern California located in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And uh, I am incubating the show there, was planning to incubate the show there, and then the Trump apocalypse happened. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, and uh, I kind of just lost my footing in the sense that mm-hmm. I didn't really know if I wanted to make jokes 
anymore. Um, I get very afraid of making light of the circumstance and the dangers that Muslim Americans face um, with a red Senate, red Congress, um, a police known to recruit uh, from the KKK, um, the FBI, that sounds like they were helping out, uh, and a president-elect who ran on, a, an, on an anti-Muslim ticket touting Muslim internment camps. Mm-hmm. Um, like, my heart's already racing, mm-hmm. just having said all that. And so just for, in terms of, like, safety, I didn't know where I stood anymore. Uh, I didn't know what was happening to our country in terms of free speech, in terms of, like, the criminalization of, um, you know, any words that I use already. You know, like, um, I have a pastime of uh, doing extreme sports and then hashtagging extreme Muslim. (laughs) That feels like a fun thing. Uh, And by a pastime, I mean one time I went ziplining at midnight. And that felt extreme. (laughs) And I felt like writing that on behalf of all Muslims. And, like, these are things that uh, I am able to do as a comedian in a country that values free speech and the freedom of religion. And when um, those election results came out, I just, I didn't know where I was living anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I also kept hearing people saying, you're going to be fine, you're going to be fine, you're going to be fine. Uh, Calm down. Um, And that made me feel like, do I need to be an alarmist? You know, I don't, I don't want to create a sort of sense of levity um, where alarm is, seems necessary. Uh, and I'm still sort of grappling with that. Uh, and then I just went through a period of time where I really hated white people. Um, I'm still there. Uh, <laughs> which is complicated because I have a white husband. Um, some of my best white men are my husbands. Uh, <laughs> And, and, I, and I just, I, I wanted to change the name of the show to, can a white guy take a joke? For God's sake, like, I cannot believe the amount of fragile white men in this country that felt it necessary to vote for a, like, loud alpha dog yelling, I told you so's. I can do that. Like, I frequently yell at my husband. Um, I just feel like all of the skills that President-elect Trump has, I carry. And I just feel like I also deserve a chance. What type of skills? Um, Mainly to run for president, uh, Uh it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he really shows us that anyone can. And isn't that the American way? Truly. (laughs) I'm still sort of trying to find... Where are the jokes, you know? Like, uh, what does it mean to... I, I very firmly believe that comedy is here to illuminate tensions that exist, not to alleviate them. I feel it's my job to make people uncomfortable. And whenever I enter into any kind of setting, I know that if I made somebody equally uncomfortable and also at the same time made someone else's day in that crowd, I did my job. 
And it shouldn't be that I leave an audience without that audience feeling like, oh, I feel a little implicated. I feel a little, feel, that felt a little messy. That, that feels like that's my job, you know? Um, I didn't sign up for the kind of comedy that's just like rubber chickens and dicks. I didn't sign up for that. As prolific as that is. Yeah. (laughs) Because I guess I just decided I don't need to make money. I don't know. Uh, Well, no, and it's interesting that you mentioned that, actually. I I also don't think it works that way. Like, I hope we get a chance to talk about kind of some of the myths that get touted about, like, you know, what is successfully funny and what is not. Like, there's this way that um, I think comedians from marginalized groups and perhaps marginalized perspectives in general are told, you know, you're just not funny. Can't you just take that? You know, maybe you're just not as good as everybody else. And uh, as a theater major, if there's one thing I know, it's that quantity is everything. Quality catches up with quantity. The more that you're able to perform, the more you're able to hone your voice. And so, so that's just such a fallacy in and of itself and, and so wrong. Um, so anyway, was this the introduction? Did we get, <laughs> are we going <laughs> to? This was the introduction. And this, um, what you were just saying in terms of the ways that um, denial of humor can be used as a weapon against different marginalized groups, saying like, well, can you take it or can't you take a joke specifically about what's happening to right. you? Um, and that being used as a way to, you know, normalize oppression saying like well they just are inherently not funny like there's that old joke about how many feminists does it take to screw in a light bulb that's not funny (laughs) and I remember interviewing you a few years back for some research on some of the politics of humor in the war on terror and the rise of Muslim American comedy challenging Islamophobic stereotypes and you were saying well I'm a Muslim and a feminist so I by definition can't take a joke right how am I I just a comedian. Dish How do I exist? What, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. Can you talk a little bit about how that functions in terms of some of the backdrops of stereotypes against which your work is able to subvert or illuminate or? Yeah, I mean, I think probably, like, for me, just the guy in the office that is like, can't you take a joke? God is like already the guy that can't take a joke. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like that character already kind of like, I just feel like where they're just like, oh my God, do I have to be careful? Like all of the time. Can't you guys just like take a joke? Like, um, also, can you just like accept that nobody likes you? Um, I like, and I, and I do feel like uh, when it comes to just like, the the fragile selves of white men in this country right now and, and the women that seem to want to protect them. Um, like, as I'm saying this, all I see in my mind is that chart that came out with the percentages of white men and white women that voted for Trump in this country. Um, and so, like, I say that because also I feel like the tendency whenever I talk about white people and whiteness is for white people in the audiences to be like, oh, but not me, come on, I work so hard. Um, see how uncomfortable everybody just got? <laughs> it's just a little, ooh, ooh, chilled reaction. Uh, like, you know, come on, oh, uh, uh, open up those comedy chakras you've appropriated. Let it, just let it, 
let it, let it, let it go, guys. Probably the most passive-aggressive thing that you could do is not tell me your feelings and then elect a fascist to collect my family. So, yeah, I, I think when we talk about, like, can people take a joke, can people not take a joke, like, it's also interesting to me that I recently learned this, um, that, like, Nia Vardalos, who uh, created My Big Fat Greek Wedding, are we all a fan of that? We love that show, that movie. Good, yeah? Not that, that, it's not that, that, that long ago. Come on, guys. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm a millennial. What, what? Um, she, after that uh, film came out, wanted to do like a lot of follow-ups and, you know, people were saying, oh, that film was such a fluke. The audience that exists for that film, like that was a one-time thing. And so she did all these studies to show that, no, actually, there are a lot of people who would love to see something like that again. Um, and I can attest to that because every time I talk about my show, I have a one-woman show called All Atheists Are Muslim, uh, which is about moving in with my pilgrim white, atheist, infidel, non-believing boyfriend and telling my Iranian Muslim parents about it. Uh, <laughs> And every time I present that show, people are like, oh my God, it's just like my big fat Greek wedding. I love that movie. It's like, yeah, there is an audience for that show, you know, like for that story, that narrative. And they just kept telling her, it's a fluke, it's a fluke, it's a fluke. So it makes it really challenging as a performer um, who is a feminist, who is a Muslim, to keep being told that like, in your career trajectory, we predict that your success will be really by chance. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I understand the hesitance of parents not wanting their children to go down the path of entertainment and comedy because the entertainment industry keeps telling us that you will not be successful, that we doubt your ability to be successful, we doubt your ability to tell your story, and we doubt your ability to tell your story in such a way that other people will connect with it. Mm -hmm. That's a, it's a powerful subtext and an effective one. Um, because if there is anybody who should be telling their story right now, it's young Muslims. Presidents and governors and senators are getting hired like achieving their positions because of talking about Muslims. So by that math, shouldn't it be true that stories of Muslim Americans do really, really, really well? Right? Am I crazy? No. Everybody is shaking their head no. We have confirmation. <laughs> so, like, I don't know if this is just like the Persian capitalist in me. But... uh. <laughs> As, as one who... Uh, There's a big market. It's a big market. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm saying. It's a big import-export. It's very good. Let's, <laughs> let's do that. Ripe time in many ways. Yeah, I, mean, I, just, I think it's, like you said, it's a, I, I see it as another tool, um, another oppressive tool to silence voices, voices that we need. Absolutely. Um. Well, and so through your one-woman shows and stand-up and writing, um, you've been directly challenging and engaging with different types of stereotypes or unexamined assumptions or biases for a long time. Mm. Um, and I'm curious what have been some of the changes that you've seen in interacting with audiences? Yeah. 
And it, maybe how your audiences have changed over time. Uh, my audiences have grown over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's important to say that uh, to the industry. They keep saying there isn't one. Um, you know, look at all of us here um, on a bloody, floody day. Uh, and do you know how much my Uber costs? God. Uh, <laughs> and we still all made it. Um, yeah, I've been doing this for 15 years. Um, and since I started, uh, gosh, where do I even begin? Um, I mean, number one, I almost didn't go into theater because I felt like, you know, all the messages I was receiving was like, you're not going to be successful in theater. You're not going to be able to support yourself. There's not enough work for you in theater, you know? Um, and I remember like going to UC Berkeley, um, and sitting in on classes where we would have these sort of like healthy debates, right? Of like, what, it, what does it mean to have a fir- affirmative action in theater? And like, what about shows where, you know, you see performers who, um, they just got that part because they're black. They just got that part because they're a person of color and so they got that role for that reason. Um, which is like, hmm. When I, if I was white, that would work out fine. So cool. We're all cool with it. We're all cool with it. Uh, it. You know, and it's just like so frustrating to hear that because like then on the other hand, the other message that I was receiving was you need to perform as often as possible. You need to perform as often as possible. You need to perform as often as possible. Right. Um, so I think what that left me with was already this sense that there I, I never regard any performance as, like, the last performance. It's always, like, the next, the, the next stepping stone to something else, you know? Like, I, I'm always hungry for the opportunity to perform, the opportunity to dialogue. Um, because I, there's, like, a sense that, like, it's, it's not plentiful. The abundance is not there, and so I need it as often as I can get it. Um, and it also felt like an environment that I just intuitively wasn't interested in because the comedians that I was hearing were touting this were just like you were just like you were just like you narrative as Muslim comedians and activists which the subtext of a we're just like you rhetoric is really we pass we pass we pass we pass we pass and I think it's really important to say that especially now uh, with white supremacists in office that I don't, want, I don't want to hear we pass. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to hear it at performances. I don't want to hear we're just like you at showcases. I don't, I don't want to be a part of that rhetoric. And when Black Lives Matter became a movement, you know, with, with this other rhetoric that was, we're not just like you. We don't look like you. We don't talk like you. I don't have to like you. And you still don't get to kill me. And I still get to be your grumpy neighbor. Like, that meant everything to me. It gave me an entirely different kind of confidence to be able to step out on the stage and know that I'm working with an audience who, yes, I'm not crazy. They're not always going to be with me as soon as I step out onto that stage. And it's not always my job to make friends. And as a woman, that's especially important because. 
If there's anything that gets in the way of your material as a writer, as a storyteller, as a comedian, it's trying to be likable, right? And, and the doing the work of exposition, explaining yourself to an audience. And so for a man to sort of like inhabit that space, um, you know, for a straight, a straight man to sort of like inhabit that space and just like own it, like, yeah, it's, it's a little bit different for me, <laughs> you know, like, and, and so then it meant a lot for me to sort of like, to have the confirmation that I'm not crazy. A lot of the times when I get on stage, already the audience doesn't like me and I don't care and it doesn't matter. And here's how I work with that. I use all of the same tools that I've used my whole entire life engaging with people already. I know how to do this already. Like, I don't need some new skills. I don't need your mechanisms, white bro dude, with your jokes about your dick. Like, I have my own toolkit. Can you um, share what some of those tools are when you're stepping into that space and engaging with different audiences? Yeah, I think, like, immediately acknowledging that there's disagreement in the room you know, is really important. Um, like breaking the audience up so that it's not a mass of people, that it already becomes a conversation and that the people in the audience don't get to um, just assume that everybody that's in the crowd sitting with them agrees with them. You know, like, uh, and it becomes necessary to uh, identify the people who are with me and like, you hear me, you hear me, you hear me and embolden them to uh, take space with their laughter and their voice. Mm. I can't tell you how many times before understanding these kinds of principles, um, I would see audience members stifling their laughter or like emailing me after and saying, oh my God, I didn't want to laugh, but like, that was so funny. You were killing me. <laughs> right? And like, the, so, so and stifling because afraid of judgment of who was sitting around them? Yeah, I mean, uh -huh. I would assume so, yeah. Uh -huh. Like, it, it is uncomfortable to hear yourself laugh out loud in a space where everybody else is uncomfortable. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And, and so knowing how to, like, knowing that that's there, that exists, and, and that I can dialogue with that the same way that I know how to dialogue with that at every party I've ever been to, at every, um, on every date I've ever been on. <laughs> You know, like, uh, that, that I already have this ability because I've lived it um, was really key. And uh, so I started out in, um, as an English major, I started out as a writer because I thought, well, I can't perform because what it means to perform as a woman is sex. Sexy sex, 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 sexy sex. That's about the range of, yeah. Is it choices. sexy? Yeah. If you're dying in this, like, you're committing suicide, is it like, are you sexy in it, though? Um, you are going to be a zombie robot, like, leading the Hot. zombie apocalypse. Hot. Yeah. It's going to be sexy. And, like, like yeah. Like, top, yeah. Yeah. I, like, As a all, decaying corpse, yeah. Mm -hmm. and pretty much, like, every role mm -hmm. I tell you, like, is going to, we all already know what that Halloween costume looks like. That's what I was thinking of. They're all, yeah, the sexy version of the, like, yeah, doctor like or any ninja or anything, or in recent years, sassy. 
Like, Maybe I in could response have a... to the sexy outcry. Okay, they're just sassy. Also Sa- for toddlers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is just like giving me a headache because I just remembered like a audition role that I got where the description literally was, she really knows her way around a skirt. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> like, l- like I run the perimeter? Like, I have no <laughs> idea what that means. I have no idea what that means. Yeah, and, and as a Muslim woman, my parents were always like, you know, society is always going to be looking for ways to objectify you. And Islam uh, was always uh, delivered to me in my family by my father as, the, like, do, do not um, give in to the tsunami of pressure for women to objectify their bodies. And, and that we have these tools to resist that, like wearing a scarf around your head um, or covering your body or dressing modestly to say, this is not for you. This is not for you. And I couldn't reconcile that with the roles that were available in uh, performance. And so I thought, like, well, I'll be a writer. I can be a writer. And, like, as soon as I got into college, I switched majors and was in theater. Like, I couldn't stay away from it. Mm. Um, And even then, like, immediately I got pigeonholed as sort of, like, the cute um, Persian girl that has cute, inconsequential stories about her family. And every time I would go perform, it would be at these Persian benefits where they say, we love everything you do. You're just nothing about religion or politics or sex. Don't talk about your boyfriend. No, but everything, 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 you do. yeah, yeah every, love everything, anything but that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anything but everything about you. Uh, yeah, okay, go. <laughs> <laughs> and then on top of that, do you have any new material? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I really don't. Um, so uh, I thought, you know, that that's it. And then one day, I was doing stand-up at this place called Blake's, which is no longer in Berkeley, with W. Kamau Bell. And uh, I was like, God, I hate my material so much. And he was like, you should take my class. And he was teaching a solo performance workshop here in San Francisco. And the first assignment was the top 10 things I'm afraid to say out loud. And uh, if you weren't like shaking when you read this list or like crying, he was like, you didn't do your homework. And you'd have to do it like again. And you had to like get up on stage and like say it. Like, declare it. And number three for me was, I'm afraid I'm not Muslim. And uh, he was like, yeah, and you have this white infidel boyfriend. What's with that? (laughs) And I was like, oh, yeah, that. And, uh, you know, he was like, you say you're afraid you're not Muslim. Like, I think you are. And I was like, well, it's not up to you. (laughs) And then he was like, well, who is it up to? And I was like, oh. Oh my God. <laughs> Mind blown. Like today I have the show on behalf of all Muslims. Cause it's up to me. It's up to me. And Fox News. Uh, really. And that was the was that the seed that of all atheists are Muslim? Yeah, yeah that and uh, I created I developed that show in his class um and uh started touring it and left stand-up comedy because it just was like not a place to find my voice like I was doing material about being Iranian and the politics of like Air Park 51 like the uh, I think it was like 
Am I saying it wrong? Am I confusing it with Area 51? I can't even <laughs> remember. The Park 50, the so-called like, the, Ground Zero Mosque. Exactly, yeah. the so-called, yeah. Uh, and uh, I was just angry, and I was trying to find my material. And I'm at a sports bar, which is like where the majority of open mics are for comedians. At 11 o'clock at night, like, oh, I'm Iranian, and like doing jokes about being Iranian and just like hearing, show me your tits, take off your shirt. Take off your shirt. I was just like, oh, this is going swell. Like, like, yeah, why can't I make it here? <laughs> Clearly, it's just me. You know, just like, which is so annoying because, like, if I was to reverse that and there's like a guy on stage and some audience member was like, whip out your dick, whip out your dick, like, that would make his day. That would be awesome. Like, he, and then, like, if, I, if it was me and somebody was like, whip out your dick, I'd be like, fuck yeah. Can I say the F word? <laughs> I'd be like, hell yeah! This is my dick. This is my dick. This is my dick. Oh my God, 3D. I don't just have to text it to you. <laughs> it, I, eventually, as I like, was performing the uh, one-woman show that I had and touring it, I was doing um, Q&As, and uh, Zahra Bilou, executive director of CARE, would, like, had come to three of my shows, and she was like, you know, every time I go to your show, I come with somebody else, and every time we leave, they have a million questions for me. You really should do a Q&A every <laughs> night, which is like crazy in theater. I was like, what are they going to ask me about blocking? Well, like, like where I put like, the furniture, and like, what, what are they going to ask me? But like, yeah, the Q&A was as long as the show. Wow. And I did it every night of the show. I had a five-week run. And, like, if not 100% of the audience, like, at minimum 40% of the audience would stick around all the way through to the end. Um, and that really, like, gave the show so much. There were, like, questions that I would receive that then, like, would become scenes. Um, what did people want to talk about? Or what were some of the nerves that your show was touching? Oh, my favorite Q&A was... There was this one night where I had performed for maybe like 20 people, but it was just the most engaged crowd. And when I was done, there was this Persian woman uh, who had a lot of questions and an Egyptian Muslim woman who had a lot of questions and a Chinese man who had a lot of questions. Um, and the Egyptian Muslim woman was like, you know, I really felt like you gave in to your father in the show to clarify. Um, my father, when I tell him, you know, that my boyfriend, now husband, legit, it's legit now, you guys, <laughs> it's legit, like, and he's in medical school, how Muslim is that? <laughs> I feel like, after he went to medical school, my mom was like, oh my god, if you just started there, <laughs> all doctors are Muslim. <laughs> right, we were like, I have something to tell you. <laughs> Different show. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, my dad was like, what's an atheist? And I realized, oh, because there's like no word for atheist in Persian. There's just seven slurs. <laughs> and infidel is one of them. And uh, my dad was like, it's okay, it's okay. Is that a, like, what is atheist? Some kind of like Christian shit? <laughs> and he is like, Christian... Jewish, Muslim, atheist, it's all the same damn shit, okay? We all believe in the God. We surrender to that God. 
And he explains, the word Muslim just means one who surrenders to a force greater than himself. That's it. And uh, I was like, well, he doesn't believe in God so much as he believes in science. And my dad was like, you mean that Tom Cruise shit? <laughs> and I was like, well, this is really worse now. <laughs> and and uh, I was like, listen, he doesn't believe in God, like not any God. He's not like spiritual, dad. He, he, he believes that we have religion due to the lack of a real economic infrastructure. And my dad like took that all in. And then he goes, well, does he believe in gravity? Because gravity is a force. He surrenders to that force. He cannot change it. He's a Muslim. And that is why all atheists are Muslim. So I tell, I, 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 I reenact this story on stage, uh, playing all the characters, my father, um, my boyfriend, my mom. And, um, you know, one of the things that my dad says is like, listen, listen, listen. Uh, I am fine with this so long as you take vows, uh, which is a sire. And that's the act. The, some people say nikah. Like the, it's a religious marriage. And he was like, but we're not going to call it a marriage. It's, we're just going to call this like a pre-engagement. That, like, you guys are just, like, making a commitment to each other. That, like, you're doing this, but... In the face of gravity. In the face of gravity. <laughs> and specifically, in Arabic, reciting these vows from a book of traditions that comes with the Quran. That's all. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I felt like my father had made such a huge leap in faith to bring in me and my infidel man. And, and so I was like, yes, you know, like we, we did this. And uh, the woman in the audience in the Q&A was like, you gave in. You gave in. Like, you should have said no to your dad. You should have stood your ground the whole way. And uh, then a Persian woman, um, yeah, and so like the... Um, Muslim woman who uh, was Arab Egyptian was like, you gave in, like, I saw myself up there, and she was there with her uh, husband who was not Muslim. And um, she was like, I wouldn't have done that, you know? And then the Persian woman was like, I felt like I saw this beautiful show that was like about your Persian identity that was just ruined by the presence of Islam. And like that Arab religion that is not the Persian religion, which is like this really touchy topic that people don't know a lot about because there are a lot of Persians that see, or I should say there are some Persians that see Islam as an Arab influx that was a colonizing force. And that like they worked hard to retain Persian tradition in the face of this like colonizing force. And it's complicated because then, like, some Persians are like, we're more white than Arabs, and some Arabs are like, we're more white than Persians. And, like, that's weird. And, that, and that's complicated. And, and so there was that. And then uh, the two women were sort of, like, arguing about, like, what was the show that they just saw. Hmm. 
it's my show. No, it's my show. No, it's my show. No, it's my show. You know, and then the Chinese man stepped in and he said, well, I think that the show was about a young Chinese American woman. (laughs) (laughs) And I just died. And he was like, you know, and it made me teary actually, because he was like, I watching you, I just saw my daughter on stage. And it was so lovely to see my family's story just played out right in front of me. And seeing your father, I'm getting emotional now because it's just so hard to keep your family intact when it's under so much scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that, that it, like, you know, there's, there's all these jokes we make about You know, why do, why, isn't it so funny that, um, you know, immigrant parents really push their kids to be doctors and lawyers, and we, we've, have, we are so far removed from our history that we don't remember that during the Japanese internment, they took the doctors first, because it debilitated a community, and then they took the lawyers so that there was no one to speak for them. You know, and... And these, these histories, we forget. And so then we say, like, you know, we make fun of the young girl who tries so hard to keep her relationship with her family while she is growing up in an entirely different culture and falling in love with a different man. But also, her family is under so much scrutiny. And it, like, my whole life growing up, it used to make me crazy when my mom would say, you'll always have your family, your friends will come and go. You'll always have your family, your friends will come and go. Like, being in a diaspora, I, I always wanted to, like, embrace my Americanness and, you know, like, why don't we celebrate Christmas? And how can we don't put up lights? And, like, I, you know, I want guest jeans. like to have all these things that like connect me with the friends that I had in school as I was you know growing up and hearing my mom say that always used to make me nuts but the truth is also that like every time I found a space where I felt like I didn't belong I always did belong at home and to lose that to to think that you're gonna lose that is a lot you know and so yeah when he said that, and then just recalling that now is so emotional. Um, yeah, my mind is going in so many different directions with everything you just shared. Um, staying with family, um, you wrote a really beautiful article earlier this year about coming out to your parents a second time as bisexual bisexual, feminist, Muslim, Iranian, American, comedian. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, what that that is to come out as bisexual, being Muslim and married. Right, married to a cis man, yeah. A bit about their response. Yeah, uh, in the wake of the Orlando shooting, there was all this conversation Mm -hmm. that you can't be queer and Muslim, uh, which I found incredibly presumptuous because I'm in charge of all Muslims. (laughs) And it made me so angry to hear that and like people debating it and like people in scholarly positions saying, no, you can't. 
Like, that's insane to me. And, uh, you know, I like lead this straight passing life. And so I was really torn. I thought like, if I take this space, is that appropriate? Um, because I haven't, I haven't lived the life that comes up against that resistance. Like, and I, and I was really struggling with it. And, um, but I, I couldn't in good conscience sit across from my co-host on our podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, and not say I'm bisexual. And uh, it's not an erasure. Like, and here I am, queer and Muslim. Like I, it felt like to not say it in that moment would have been a homophobic act, mm. and I couldn't do it. And so then I wanted to write about it, but I was sweating because I was like, I've never told my parents this. I've never had to tell my parents this. And I wasn't home at the time. Like I was traveling a lot. And like, what am I going to do? Like text them? <laughs> By the way. And I didn't know how, I suddenly didn't know how they were going, going to respond. And I was like, the last time I felt like this was when I was like, hey, I'm, I'm with an atheist dude. And I don't know how Muslim I am. Uh, and, and I was just sick. And when I like landed and my parents picked me up, I thought maybe they saw it on social media because I had not mentioned it. And my parents are on Twitter and they only follow one person, which is me. (laughs) (laughs) And so like I, every question they asked me, I was just like bracing myself, you know, my mom was like, Hey, and I was just like, yeah. Like, are you coming to the wedding? What are you going to wear? I was just like, Oh my God, I cannot survive this <laughs> I have to tell them so like I braced for impact and I said it you know and my dad immediately who's like my father is this like very austere Persian man you know like his two favorite words in the English language are the shit and the hell like <laughs> what the shit the hell is this I don't know. like he's always like and I always have to say that every time I do an accent like when I do it it's funny if you do it it's a microaggression <laughs> to, cl- to clarify like and, uh, like he responds by going girls women and he looks at my mom and he looks at me and he goes good luck <laughs> and then my mom hits him in the shoulder and she's like shut up and she goes oh my god are you sleeping with Taz which like just I died Who's your co-host? Who's my co-host for the show? Because, of course, immediately she's like, who are the women that Zara hangs around with all of the time? And then she starts going through my Facebook feed, and she was like, what about her? What about her? What about her? Do you think she's pretty, though? Do you think she's pretty, though? Do you think she's pretty, though? And I was like, oh, my God, this is a whole other nightmare. (laughs) I did not anticipate. And I was like, okay, I'm laughing, but, like, I'm kind of, upset because like you have no idea what I've been going through and I didn't know how you were going to respond and my mom uh was like you know and and I told them like there are people who were saying you can't be queer and Muslim and my mom had this really gorgeous response she said that's bullshit (laughs) (laughs) she said uh Jesus walked on water but Allah gave a young orphaned illiterate boy a book and said, read, because self-discovery makes a prophet, not a bunch of self-righteous jerks. Nobody stands between you and Allah. Never forget that. And it's just so lovely. And my dad added, 
yeah, that's bullshit, man. (laughs) 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 Like, and it was like, again, wow, like, I really needed my family. You know, and, and, and they met me there, and, and that meant everything. And then, of course, then my father, like, went on to add, but also you're married to a guy. <laughs> and I was like, and if something were to happen and, like, it didn't work out, woman would be an option. And he was like, but also you're married <laughs> to a guy. Like, you know, I want to acknowledge that, like, that... That little uh, flavor of homophobia is like still fresh, you know, and like something to that, like, well, they'll continue to have to work through. But they again reminded me that parents evolve, like their thoughts and feelings and ideas also evolve. They're whole people in this world too, and they're three dimensional beings with me in this world, and we're figuring this out, and I needed that. In your um, other one-woman show, Hijab and Hammer Pants. Um, that I got good titles, right? <laughs> Hijab and Hammer Pants, all atheists are Muslim. Um, part of that also is talking about foregrounding your mom being an ally growing up. Could you share a little bit about the development of that piece and what it explores? Yeah. Uh, so Hijab and Hammer Pants is about when I was 11 years old and I was going to a religious Farsi school uh, where all the material was being um, was put together by the theocratic government of Iran. You would take these exams in every subject so that you could then, when you're in Iran, like if you ever moved back, enter in at the exact same grade level. So some of the questions were a little weird. Like, uh, in Islam, if a mother wears hijab but her daughter does not, does the mother burn in hell for her? And I was like, uh, no. That wasn't multiple choice. <laughs> yeah, it's not multiple choices. Fill in the blank. Open-ended. Yeah, just <laughs> you would think it was open-ended, but they had a sense of a right answer there. Mm. Uh, and it, it did not feel like it worked out in my favor. I was not a hijab-wearing kid at the time. And I was, like, telling my teacher, I, like, don't wear hijab, but my mom does, and, like... I will one day just not while I'm in high school. And I was going to tell all of this to God when I got there. But you're telling me that they're going to set her on fire before I even get there? And she said, yes. And then she looked at me and she went, I know. (laughs) It's really bad. And I was like, oh. Like if she at least was like the type of person who was like pushy or like, you know, loudly, like, self-righteous, then I could be like, oh, screw you. But she was just like, I feel so bad for you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I flipped out, and I thought, like, I have to wear a hijab from now on. This is it. Like, every minute that I do something wrong, like, you, is like a minute in eternity spent in hell. Like, and I'm sending my mother to hell. Like, I can't. And I I was flipping out. And I thought that I was solid because. (laughs) last year in that class, we had learned about a thing called heaven points, which is a word called savab. It is uh, like good deed points, basically. And gray areas exist in religion, but do not work well with eight-year-olds. And so when I was eight, um, 
like our teacher was trying to teach the class about savab points, heaven points, and like what it means to like do an act that it has great savab, like it means a lot. And we were like, okay, so like every time we do our homework, that's a savab point. And she was like, well, uh, you know, and like she's also holding the space of like, if I say yes, I can have God make them do their homework. <laughs> While we're like, oh my God, I'm counting like every heaven point that I have. And she was like, when you're in the afterlife, you will have two books and there will be one that is like full of heaven points and one that is full of negative points. And whichever book is the heavier book is going to send you there. And like... I was like, um, I ate pork once. <laughs> like, say somebody said that, who was not me. Would they go to hell? How many points is pork? <laughs> and every kid in class was looking at me like, whoa. <laughs> like, I, everyone just like, because before that, everyone was like, what if you lie? What if, like, you bit your sister? What if... <laughs> What if you kicked your brother in the dick? Like, how many negative points is that? And I was like, what if you ate pork? And they were just like, whoa. <laughs> and then she just, like, looked at me like, ew. <laughs> and uh, I was like, how can you get the most heaven points? And she said, if you were to die in the Revolutionary War fighting for Iran, you would go to heaven for sure. And I was like, is there a second way? <laughs> and she said... If you were to introduce Islam to somebody who has never received it before, to save a soul is just like worth an insurmountable number of points. And I was like, how many? <laughs> and she was just like, like millions and millions. And so I like ran home. I went to my friends and I knocked on their door and I was like, have you heard of Islam before? <laughs> and my friend Christine was like, what's Islam? And I was like, perfect. And I was like, I need you to convert to Islam. <laughs> but like, because you want to. But like, I need you to convert. And she was like, can my sister also do this? And I was like, oh my God, yes. That's two million heaven points. And she was like, what? And I was like, yeah, if we convert, if I convert you, I get a million heaven points. And she was like, can I convert somebody too? And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> And so she, like, grabbed our friend Casey, and she was like, Casey, you have to convert to Islam. And she was like, but I don't want to be Muslim. Like, we were playing hide-and-seek. And she was like, I don't want to play Muslim. <laughs> like, Christine was like, no, you have to, or we're not going to play with you. And I was like, damn, Christine. And, but I went with it, and we ran into the apartment where, like, my grandma was, and I was like, Grandma, my friends want to be Muslims. And she was like, mm, do their parents know? <laughs> And I was like, factoring in my head, a lie is worth like one negative point. <laughs> this is three million. Yes, their parents know and they're going to convert too. And like we, they said the shahada, we did prayers, they did like their first namaz, she showed them how to wear like the chador, and like we faced Mecca, and I was like, three million heaven points, pork for life. <laughs> oh my God, I felt amazing. And I was like, ah, I totally get religion. <laughs> so I was a bit thrown when my teacher said that my mother was going to burn in hell. I was like, can she use my heaven points? No, they don't transfer that way. And 
Then my father picked me up and he was like, you know, how'd you do on your test? How'd you do on your test? How'd you do on your test? And I was like, oh, I don't know. He was like, oh, come on, we studied. I told you. He was a tyrant. He was a tyrant. He was a tyrant. And then Muhammad came and everything was fine. Like, <laughs> it's not that hard. And I was like, I, th- I think I got an A, you know. And my dad had this thing where, like, you always had to say an A. If you said A minus, what the mm. shit the hell is this, Sahra? A minus. You know, and if you got an A plus, what the shit the hell is this, Sahra? Why you take such an easy class? <laughs> it's like A pluses, like, where it's just like... Just a sign of a bullshit Less class. Less real. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, yeah, I, th- I think I did fine. And we were getting out of the car to go to Blockbuster. He's like, oh, we'll get a movie. We'll celebrate. And I'm wearing my hijab from school still. And he was like, oh, you still have your hijab on, man? Would you cold or something? And I was like, no, I'm going to wear it. And he was like, okay. And I was like, because mom is going to burn in hell. And this is what my teacher said. And he was like, whoa, nobody is burning in hell. And, you know, your mom and I talked about this and wearing hijab, it's very difficult and we don't want that for you. And I was so offended that he said that. I was like, because it's difficult? Like, you're going to let me hurt mom because it's difficult? And I was like, no, I'm going to wear it. And I walked into Blockbuster, the proudest little girl to ever wear hijab at a Blockbuster. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the like blockbuster uh was an awful experience like you know i was 11 extremely self-conscious already and everyone was like looking at me looking away looking at me looking away looking at me looking away and i started speaking in like perfect english you know and being like dad let's order monster truck rallies <laughs> and eat free away they are not at all disgusting and just like really uncomfortable and I was like, uh, you know, and I called up my friend when I got home and I was like, listen, uh, I'm going to be wearing something different on the first day of school tomorrow. And she was like, how different? Because it's junior high. <laughs> and uh, I was like, well, it's this thing that's for my religion. And will you still hang out with me? Not any more than usual, but will you still hang out with me? And she's like, you know, thinking about it. <laughs> and, And she didn't know what I was talking about, and I was, like, trying to explain to her. And my mom came in, and she was, like, all excited. She had all these Mervyn's bags. And she was like, Zara, 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 I I went school shopping for you. And she was always trying to get me to fit in and, like, didn't understand that clearance meant it was no longer trendy. And she had bought me these yellow MC Hammer pants. This is, like, 1991. It's, like, the year of grunge and, like, Nirvana. It's not so much, like, a hammer pants <laughs> vibing kind of school. And I was like, well, on Monday, I'm already kind of doing something different, Mom. And she was like, oh, your dad told me about that, and I, I don't want you to do that. Uh, you know, like, um, I... Uh, wear a hijab because it's comfortable for me, because it's my tradition and I like it. And if it's not comfortable for you, then don't wear it. And I was like, do you know where you're going to go? And she was like, we don't believe that. Like, that is her version of Islam. She believes that for herself. We don't believe that that's true, Zahra. And I was like, what? can do that (laughs) and she was like Zahra religion is like a fart 
Everybody thinks theirs does not smell, but it does. And I was like, that's so true about farts. <laughs> and I like, that was like the perfect analogy for like my 11 year old brain to be like, oh, this is like, you know, religion means different things to different people. And uh, she was like, but if you really want to do something for your mother, you will wear these yellow MC Hammer pants <laughs> and this fuchsia mock turtleneck on your first day of school. And I was like, oh, my God, she got me. <laughs> and so I wore it, and my friend was like, you look like a Skittle. <laughs> Is this for your religion? <laughs> And I was like, kind of. <laughs> kind of is. That, that's the show, Hijab and Hammer Pants, um, that I performed at Snap Judgment. I debuted it on the Snap Judgment stage at the Paramount. And um, it uh, is a show that uh, I'd wanted to expand and, um, and now looking at incorporating into the, the book that I'm writing right now called My Infidel Husband. It's a, it's, I always enjoy that story. Like, people forget that, like, you know, hijab is a piece of clothing, and, like, it bears meaning the way that all clothing bears meaning. And it is horrifying to me to see these stories of, like, women being harassed because it's like you would not rip a shirt off of a woman. You would not do that. And like, it's assault. It's a form of sexual assault. And I am surprised that we don't hear more feminists getting behind women who have their hijabs ripped off of them that are like standing up to this and in solidarity. And it is, has just been so disappointing to me. Like, to me, it's just like another version of, show me your tits, show me your tits, show me your tits. Like, if you can take a joke, you'd show me your tits. You know, like, it's, it's, all, it's all the same damn shit, man, is what my father would say. Um, so I want to ask you about um, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, which maybe some people have tuned in to this widely acclaimed podcast that began as a hashtag and conversation between you and your co-host, Tenzila Ahmed, and you were recently invited to the White House Press Correspondence Dinner. Oh, no, uh, that would be Or awesome. just to the White House. Just to the White House. Just. Just yeah. the White House, guys. What's been some of the, the trajectory of um, your show? Yeah, so um, the, we were invited to the White House because Taz received an award um, as a champion of change in art and storytelling. Um, and she said, well, as part of my storytelling work that I do, I have this podcast, and it would be really cool to be able to do an episode from the White House. And they said yes, and that was amazing. And the response to the show has been insane. In, before we had recorded it, we were interviewed on PRI's Global Nation um, on Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and it went viral. And they were like, what are your segments? And we we're like, we'll tell you after we record them. <laughs> and within the second month, we were in Mother Jones. Um, we like, started to make all the like, diversity podcast lists. Then uh, we were in Oprah Magazine, Take Note. Um, and that was just like month six. 
Um, and two years later, you know, we were at the White House and Glenn Greenwald had retweeted us. Uh, that feels like sweet. a big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that feels pretty sweet. Um, and I think, like, the response, again, just goes to show everyone how badly we need these voices and how underrepresented it, the world, the planet, planet Islam is. I mean, it feels bizarre to, like, say Muslims because it is, like, 1.7 billion different individuals in different countries and locations all over the world with extraordinarily different practices who, in case you didn't notice, a lot of us don't even like each other. This is like, you know, peace in the Middle East. That's kind of a thing, right? Like, and like, there's all this like, sort of like rhetoric of creeping Sharia. And so we made that a segment on our podcast, Creeping Sharia. And like, there were a couple of times where we actually got our stories from Breitbart because they were touting it as something to be afraid of. And we were like, hey, this is pretty cool. Creeping Sharia. We have a hijabi Muppet. Yay. Even though on Breitbart, they were like, this is evidence of creeping Sharia, you know, like to be able to celebrate that. And um, like, it is also funny to me that like people in this country are worried about Islam coming over here when like, I feel like the land that everybody seems to want is not here. Like, I would be fine living in Iran if you weren't bombing it or trying to. Like, that would be cool. I'll go home. I'm good going home. Actually, today I had somebody tweet me, you're in America now. And I was like, um, yeah, like since my mother's womb. Been here. In a now kind of way. Yeah, in a now kind of way. Like, it's anchor baby. Proud of it. Here to take your job. <laughs> This is capitalism, I think. I am on LinkedIn. (laughs) And so with the title and then the themes that you choose with Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, what kind of space is that meant to open up in terms of inhabiting different identities or some of the projections on you? Oh, yeah. Um, It's funny to me when people ask us, like, who's the good Muslim, who's the bad? Because, like, the whole point of the podcast is that that doesn't exist. (laughs) We're all bad. Um, (laughs) And we, like, Taz and I wanted a place where we could hear kind of, like, the conversations that she and I have, that, like, you know, our dating life is influenced by politics because our lives are political. Um, You know, and the identities that we claim make us political. Um, And and we... That comes up when we talk about dating, you know, and like we talk about like, you know, relationships and books that we like and movies that we like and things that happen to us and awkward conversations that we have. Um, So, yeah, it sort of like gave us an opportunity to take that space, have those conversations and have this amazing platform um, and connect with people The like the for all the good and bad of the Internet. One has been that like we get emails from young Muslim girls who like are in the middle of, you know, red, red state America, nowhere, like surrounded by people who hate them or want some explanation for, you know, their existence. Um, They have this companionship with us, you know, and us with them. 
Um, and, and that's amazing. In terms of talking about solidarity, mm. which is needed and can look so many different ways, um, what would you hope for from non-Muslims who are freaked out right now with historical echoes mm. and rhetoric, yeah. the proposed registry? What would you like to see? You cannot sign up for the registry. It is not a bridal shower. It is modern day internment. It's data. It doesn't work like that. So don't ask me or claim that you're going to get on the registry. And definitely don't say you think you're going to pass because that's kind of dickish. And uh, get as informed as possible. Like, I think for me, like, the thing that is so disheartening is to sit here worrying about it and to hear in response, you're fine. Like, the dismissiveness mm -hmm. is horrifying because the fact that it's a conversation, you know, is terrifying. Like, I can't, I can't believe that it's being debated. Um, right. And there's been Japanese American elders and groups who have been very vocal recently saying like for people who don't remember or don't think this could happen again, telling stories and standing up in solidarity. Yeah, I hope that people are reading those stories. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, in an era of like, you know, where we're flooded by fake news, I think the most important thing you can use is your common sense. Like, we, this is... Silicon Valley. We understand how data functions. We know the amount of danger that we could be in. We know and understand what's at stake. And so we should act accordingly, not in a way that catastrophizes, but in a manner that is strategic and actionable and does not rely on sympathy. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrera at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu/podcast.